there was a young lady from Venus whose body was shaped like a... Captain to security, come in! Did I say something wrong? I don't understand their humor either. Psychobabble, where art, politics, music, philosophy, and especially psychology meet far beyond the stars and where few have gone before. I'm Elliot, your fully functional resident Trek nerd. And I'm Elizabeth, telepathic drug mule and student of humanoid psychology. Our mission each week is to boldly tackle an idea or ideas through the lens of our beloved franchise to seek out and explore new perspectives about who we are and who we could be. This week, Elizabeth and I continue our discussion on drugs by shifting focus to a more recreational view. What are our Star Trek heroes like when they're drunk? We begin with the classic original series episode, The Naked Time, from the 1966 first season. It was written by John D.F. Black and directed by Mark Daniels. The Enterprise has been tasked to recover an observation team on a dying ancient world, Psi 2000. When Spock and his wave team arrive, they discover the team dead, strewn about the observation post and frozen solid. The team appears to have sabotaged their own life support systems on purpose, and they all died in very odd ways, as though they had been driven mad. But Spock's and McCoy's best scans don't reveal any causes. Despite the inexplicable danger, Kirk insists the Enterprise must remain in tight orbit and complete the observation team's critical mission of watching the planet die for them. Meanwhile, we see and hear the gradual infection of the crew by whatever thing made the observation team go mad, and with the infection comes consequent growing madness in the crew. Complicating the situation are the facts that McCoy still can't seem to find any explanation, and the task of observing Psi-2000 requires razor-sharp reflexes on the crew's part, which are becoming increasingly short in supply. Have no fear, O'Reilly's here, and one Irishman is worth 10,000. You Mr. O'Reilly. Lieutenant Uhura, take over the station. Yes, sir. Now, that's what I like. Let the women work, too. Universal suffering. Report the sick day, Mr. Riley. Before too long, one man is dead. Another is thumping his chest over his Irish heritage. Sulu is running after men in the corridor with his shirt off. It was inevitable, I suppose. I'm sweating like a bridegroom. Yeah, me too. Why don't you come down to the gym with me? Give him a lad. Now? Why not? Light workout will take the edge off. Oh, and the ship is spiraling out of control towards the planet surface. With minutes to go before the Enterprise is destroyed, Kirk and Spock have both succumbed to the drunken infection. Overwhelmed with emotions, regrets, pain, horniness, anyone who stayed a little too long at the bar can probably relate. With McCoy's help, however, they manage to pull themselves together enough to escape Psy-2000's gravity well. This achievement has the unexpected side effect of causing the Enterprise to travel backward in time. Whoops. So, they can live those past 72 hours all over again. Not those last three days. This does open some intriguing prospects, Captain. Since the formula worked, we can go back in time. To any planet, any era. We may risk it someday, Mr. Spock. Yeah, Elizabeth, so I, I feel like we're, we're, we've now together, you, you still have obviously watched the whole original series. Yeah. Um, we're, we're getting there. But as we continue to take little peeks um, at it, uh, this is 
other than the unaired pilot, this is the earliest episode of TOS that we've watched together for the pod. And this one is doing a lot of heavy lifting in terms of establishing sort of Trek norms and things that'll become, what do you want to call them? Tropes, cliches uh, moving forward. Okay. That's good to know. I mean, even though I haven't watched the whole original series, like I, I know who these characters are already. And so I, I hadn't had that in mind when I was watching watching this episode for the pod that like, oh, this is people's introduction to these characters and to these actors. Like, you know, like I'm watching George Takei, you know, in that scene and I'm like, yeah, that fits. That's George Takei. Like, I'm, like that tracks. Stan. No father. <laughs> no escape for you. You either leave this war bloodied or with my blood on your souls. Um, phrasing? Well, the George Decay stuff is particularly funny in retrospect because, of course, uh, George Decay is, is kind of a gay icon now um, as a, a real-life person, was in the closet in the 60s, but seeing him essentially flirt with and chase men down the corridors with the sword, and it's all very Freudian and wonderful. <laughs> uh, yeah, do you think he had anything to do with that? Or the writers were like, <laughs> unconsciously, just like, ah, you know what would be great for this guy? Uh, I might be wrong. I think Gene Roddenberry knew, I think all of them knew, but, you know, it was one of those, it was the time, of course, when you didn't talk about that stuff openly. Yeah. Because um, I know that J.K. lobbied for a gay allegory episode of some sort um, in, in TOS, which never happened, unfortunately. Damn but. it. Luckily, Trek is still in the air, so it's all good. Um, there's this great sort of uh, the A and B plot stuff that you've talked about before. You like when they se- seem to have something to do with each other and yeah, are yeah. just sort of existing in the same space. So the Enterprise is slowly and spe- acceleratingly speeding up towards the planet surface, um, which is wonderfully insane. <laughs> but it mirrors, obviously, what's happening with the crew and they're spiraling out um, under the influence of this weird water drug yeah absolutely and like watching the planet spin underneath them like i felt so dizzy you know like how you just like lose your balance when you're a little tipsy um but Mm -hmm. also i was i was looking at that being like is the planet moving that fast or the ship or both i it was just it was very disorienting which again is like a play on the whole episode agreed and that's one of the things i really love about tos especially and that i I miss occasionally, although you see it, you still see it in things like Prodigy and things where the um, the real world physics, the, the hard sci-fi aspects of it are sacrificed for the metaphorical sci-fi side of things. And it's like, if this were actually happening that fast, I think they would all be very, very dead. <laughs> right? Like the, 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 like the fake gravity would not be working that well. Exactly. But it creates an, an image and a feeling, like like you were saying, of, of sort of reflecting on this intoxication that, that is effective. The thing that stuck out to me, I think, the most about the, the, the characterizations in this episode, uh, or that felt familiar as someone who drinks, uh, is this tendency that people seem to have sometimes where when you're under the influence, when you're intoxicated, suddenly, even though you can't see straight or walk straight or don't have full control of your faculties, now is the time for a philosophical discussion for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think 
think you and I have been in that situation, you know, just like a little not sober and talking very highfalutin concepts. I'm pretty sure we had the idea to do this podcast in a similar situation. I don't remember, but I believe you. Um, is So is that, I don't know, is there anything sort of deeper to that idea? Like somehow we're, I don't know, is it that we're proving that we're really still in control when we're not, that we're able to access these higher concepts, or is it just the floodgates are loose? I don't know. What do you think? Well, I, I think it's about moving along a spectrum. You know, like there are some days when we are very, we're very much like human creatures and human animals. Like we have to eat, we have to do the laundry, you know, we have to like do all these like just maintenance things to survive. And that's very much rooted in like the material world, right? But that's not all of what and who we are as individuals or as a species. And so I think maybe when we're a little when we're a little drunk, we can kind of let go of that tether of like the animalistic material side of ourselves a little bit and float more into the like the conceptual, philosophical, like I can talk about all these kind of things when I'm not worried about bills I'm going to pay or like Mm. making groceries or feeding the dog, you know, like all of that's there. But I think for a minute, Mm. just like how substances can change your state of consciousness, I think they can also just like move you along the spectrum of like how much are of you are this like spiritual incarnation and how much of you are this animal, you know, I think, so I think it just moves the needle a little bit. And when we're a little, yeah, when we're a little intoxicated, it's just easier to access these grand ideas that aren't tethered to anything because we can let go of that tether for a minute. Yeah. We're going to, we're going to circle back to the sort of general idea about this at the end, of course, but it, it almost, it's, it's like unfortunate that we have to find a way to, 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 to untether ourselves in, in this way in order to have these conversations. It would be nice, you might say, to be able to have them spur of the moment for, for no particular reason other than that's something we want to talk about. Yeah. One, one of the things that struck me as odd, but maybe true, I don't know, I'm, I'm curious about your, your reaction to this. So we have, um, I think it's Lieutenant Ryan, the guy who's singing all... Um, uh, oh, the Irish the love song. songs. The Irish love songs. Yeah, and he's like, he's suddenly he's very Irish and very sexist, and it's it's not great, but it's like, well, he's drunk. I guess that is what it is. I'll take you home again, Kathleen. But then you also, of course, have Sulu becoming his little D'Artagnan self, and and Spock getting very sad in his Vulcanness. Um, in other words, this kind of regression to, okay, so as we said, this is like the fourth episode of the series yeah. of all of Star Trek, and we are establishing norms. And one of the norms is, is, of course, we have all these people from different cultures, different places, not only on Earth, but out, uh, outside of the Earth, um, coexisting, living together in one cohesive society, uh, microcosm on the ship. And when they are intoxicated, then people start to retreat to their sort of cultural corners. It seems to be what's being suggested is that this this is the negative influence of this of this activity. And something about that feels right to me. So, so you're saying like when they're intoxicated, there there's this regression back to the these almost 
caricature-like ideas about, like, the culture that they come from? Is that what you're saying? Um, not exactly. More that the, the, the thing which provides that Star Trek philosophical unity on the ship and in, in their society in general is um, torn away a bit or at least reduced oh, because okay. of the influence of this. So people become a little bit more provincial and caught up in their own cultural baggage. Mm-hmm. People, I've, I have certainly witnessed people say, for example, racial slurs or sexual slurs or what say things that are clearly not acceptable and they would not say were they sober um when they're drunk or high or whatever yeah and without getting into whether that's the real them or not just the idea that there's some there's something kind of um base and like i said provincial and um maybe nationalist whatever yeah that you some place you go to yeah, no, thank you for clarifying. That makes a little bit more sense to me. It's, and what comes to mind when you describe it that way is, again, like people are intoxicated. They don't have all their faculties. Like they don't have as much control over their actions or their words as they normally would. Like there's there's a hindrance there, and that almost I I wonder if that makes them go on autopilot in a way. You know, like hey, like mm. I'm just gonna fall back into these like cultural ideas and conditioning that I've inherited and I'm just going to say that without even really thinking about whether or not I agree with it but it's like falling back into a more like cultural foundation whether or not that's a good thing well I would say it's the episode is saying it's not a good thing yeah um and obviously when it comes to saying racist things yeah that <laughs> um or it, we're clearly talking about negative things here. Um, yeah, that 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 tracks for me. Or, or I guess what it suggests is that there are learned behaviors, um, but learned after the point of childhood. Like we have obviously learned behaviors that maybe are are automatic, but then as we get older and we are told by the voices outside of us, this is acceptable, this isn't. And of course, those voices change as society changes, yeah. which is fine, which is not a bad thing. That's how civilization works. Yeah, yeah. But as that happens, you have to add another layer of conditioning, right, of to yourself and your actions, which of course, that the, 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 maybe the, the more, most, more recently those layers have been applied, the more easily they fall away when we're under the influence. Yeah, no, that makes sense. You know, when in when we talk about neural pathways, especially like the more you can imagine like these roads in your brain. And if you travel down a certain road, that that's just going to get more ingrained and like become a road that's just easier for you to travel down the more you do it. But then and so like let's say in the case of our Irish, you know, chanteur, um, you know, that he had these ideas about like, I, well, I could be captain. I have these grand ideas for myself and being Irish is great. And like, he had those roads in there. You know what Joe's mistake was? He wasn't born an Irishman. And he maybe traveled down them for, let's say seven years, you know, up until he was seven. And then someone was like, you actually can't say that. Like, that's not great. So he builds another road. And he starts driving down that other road in his own mind, 
more frequently, but that original road is still there. And so maybe when we get intoxicated, it's like you put up detours and roadblocks in your brain. And it's like, you can't go down the road that you were told later on that you needed to go down. So you just default back into the most ingrained default roadmap in your head, which could be, right. I'm so great because I'm Irish. Well, what I think you're describing is kind of like like branching roads, right? Like they keep forking mm-hmm. and you are taking, based on what you're told or you, decisions you make, you know, it's kind of like a, like a time tree. Um, and the less inhibited you are, the closer you're going to tra- you're going to go back towards the original route, right? Is that? Yeah, ish. Yeah. Ish. <laughs> it's, it's a little bit right. more quantum than binary, but you know, it's fine. It's just going to work for what we're talking about right now. Star Trek loves quantum. That's perfect. Great. <laughs> quantum everything. The, the other, or I guess the last thing uh, with this episode that, that stuck out to me was the fact that the reactions in the crew to this same intoxication are so radically different, which, yeah. um, again, feels very true to life. Uh, some people, when they're drunk, uh, are angry in ways that they would never be, for example, um, when they're sober, or they are happy. Like some people are very just sort of joyous and sort of into being around other people. And some people get very, very sad, yeah. like, like Spock does. And just trivia, I mean, this is, I think this is somewhat known, but Leonard Nimoy had to improvise that scene. I'm in control of my emotions. I'm sorry. <laughs> two, two, four, six, six times, six times. <laughs> Originally. It was just going to be, I think they were going to draw a mustache on him or something. Scotty was going to do something, something goofy to be like, what? you're not acting in character. Yeah, but Nemo was like, I want something a little more substantive um, for my character here. So I'm, he did that in one take. Yeah. I am so glad he did that. I was blown away by his acting in that scene. I just was like, whoa. Like, because you so rarely get to see him act out of character in Spock and like be more like a human. Um yeah. And just to see that come out, I was just like, oh, you're a really good actor. Oh, my God. Yeah. Leonard yeah. Nimoy is such a gift. And that's one of the... We'll, we'll talk about this sometime when we do our Vulcan episode, but it's one of the things that's... It's deceptive. Now that we've seen a lot of Vulcans portrayed in Star Trek, very few actors can actually do that in a way that doesn't feel robotic and, and weird, can do that logical thing, and he does it. But, of course, we see he has the range here. Anyway, yeah. my point being... Um, that wide variance in reaction to substances is is interesting to me for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is we, especially with alcohol, we consider it to, in our society, consider it to be a social activity, mm-hmm. usually. You're drinking at dinner or at a bar or whatever with, with people. And if you're not with people, it's usually seen as maybe a little suspicious. Um, or concerning. And, I would say concerning instead con- of suspicious. Always with the, ha- the glass half full. I love that. Thank you. Yes, it is. It is possibly concerning if you're drinking alone, um, and 
because because there's this idea that it is a community provider or like an instigator of good feelings the fact that some people very clearly are going to go one way to one extreme one to the other it doesn't seem like it would really facilitate that very well i think you get a lot more conflict than just being sober yeah i think the idea that drinking is a social activity is like a win for alcohol's pr team (laughs) you know i'm just like wow that's great that that's their reputation not completely accurate um as i think most alcoholics will tell you people are different and that sounds very cliche but like i think we all are dealing with emotional conflict under the surface that is unique to us some people are really really sad and they put on a bright face or they put on a smiley face and go out into the world to pretend that they're not sad or they pretend that they're not angry like there's some emotion that for whatever reason they're like it's not okay for me to feel that way you know and so i have to hide it or i have to repress it and you know alcohol again pr team win is supposed to reduce your inhibitions. So if you're inhibiting feeling something that you don't think you should be feeling or that you don't want to feel, when whatever is underneath that hood, when you take it off, like that's going to come out. It's not just, oh, everyone is actually like going to be really happy and goofy if they can just let loose. You know, like some people are holding back more difficult emotions. I'll take you home again. John D.S. Black co-wrote the sequel to The Naked Time for TNG's first season in 1987. The Naked Now was co-written by Michael Bingham and directed by Paul Lynch. The Enterprise has received a series of strange messages, drunken Snapchats by the sound of them, from the USS Tsiolkovsky. Before they arrive, the emergency hatch on the Tsiolkovsky is blown out, meaning the crew have all died, either frozen to death or sucked out into space. And by the look of things, after one rager of a party. Hmm, this sounds familiar. Yes, indeed, it seems that, like in The Naked Time, the Tsiolkovsky crew succumbed to a strange infection that makes water behave like alcohol. And, like in The Naked Time, the away team has brought the infection back to the Enterprise. Luckily, Riker remembers seeing that episode at some point and instructs Data to search the database for prior instances of bad behavior. I remember I was reading a history of all the past starships named Enterprise. They were monitoring a planet that was breaking up and not a collapsing stars in this case. But there were the same huge shifts in gravity. Which somehow resulted in complex strings of water molecules which acquired carbon from the body and acted... acted on the brain like alcohol. The entire crew going out of control. Like intoxication, but worse. Judgment almost completely impaired. You can relax, Doctor. The answer to all of this is feeding into your medical banks right now, including a cure. Are you certain, Captain? Absolutely. Meanwhile, Typhoid Geordi is already spreading the infection around the ship. First to Wesley, who's busy establishing how much of a nerd he is. Take the helm, Mr. Crusher. That's the captain's voice. 
It's pieced together from words he's used on the intercom. With this, I can pretend he's ordering me to take the Enterprise anywhere. Then Tasha, who breaks into Troy's quarters to start trying on girly things and trying out Data's accessories. You are fully functional, aren't you? Of course, but... How fully? In every way, of course. I am programmed in multiple techniques. A broad variety of pleasuring. Oh, you jewel. That's exactly what I hoped. Then to Troy, who wants to reconnect with her Mzadi. Getting into sick pain. Wouldn't you rather be alone with me? With me in your mind? And to hundreds of other crewmen who start partying in the corridors. Data and Riker find the records from Kirk's Enterprise before too long, which should allow Dr. Crusher to apply the same solution as McCoy and keep history from repeating itself. Except when she tries to treat Geordi, it doesn't work. Oh, and like in The Naked Time, the ship is also accelerating towards its doom, although this time it's a collapsing star instead of a planet. Eventually, Picard, Riker, Crusher, and even Data become infected as well. Wesley's chicanery in engineering means the ship is unable to activate engines and avoid its own destruction. It takes a combination of some improvisation on Beverly's part, all while trying to keep her hands off Picard, Data's super speed, and Wesley's boy genius to save the ship and crew. Before we head to the closing credits, Tasha and Data have a little moment, which I'm sure will never come up again. I'm only going to tell you this just once. It never happened. So, Elliot, in typical Elizabeth fashion, because I have not seen all of Star Trek yet, um, including the original series, the first time I watched this episode, I had not seen the original series episode on which it was based. So I had no idea that this was a reference to Uh the original series at all. Um, Until rewatching these episodes for the pod... Then I was like, oh, this is a complete reference to this episode, 100%. And to watch them back to back was like, was really cool for me because I could see like point by point how they matched up. Like, oh, in the original series, there was like the Irishman, um, you know, in the in TNG, there's Wesley who right. both want to be captain. You know, it's just like, oh, like see, seeing how it gets replayed. Absolutely. It's it was certainly a brave choice. I don't know that it was the right choice, but this idea that, okay, we just met these characters. This is goes for both series, honestly. At least in TOS, it was a different time. It was also the fourth instead of the second episode of the series. But either way, it's like, okay, we just met these people, and now we're going to get them drunk <laughs> and see them act completely <laughs> out of character. And by implication, then you, I guess, reverse engineer what they're supposed to be like normally. It's a very... Special. I don't think I've ever seen another show um, try that. Where we're gonna we're gonna show you normal by showing you abnormal first. You know what I mean? One thing I do appreciate about that decision is that really early in the series, we're introduced to all these underlying interpersonal conflicts that are underneath the surface of all these relationships. Hmm. Like we learn really early on that there's a there's like this romantic tension between Beverly and Jean Luc. We learn really early on about the tension between Riker and Troy, though that was a little that was introduced in Farpoint, you mm-hmm. know, when they have the telepathic communication. Um, we learn really early on about um, Tasha as a character, you know, how she her like yeah. presents it. Yeah, her backstory and Jordy's thing with the visor is a little interesting because I don't think that gets played out in the same way throughout the series. Jordy, please put. These I want to see in shallow, dim beautiful 
human ways. But I still think that this choice really did help kind of unveil these underlying dynamics in a way that was wouldn't have been so direct if they hadn't done that. You know, like how like how else would you have made it so clear to people that Jean-Luc and Beverly like have a thing? You know, how how else would they have revealed that tension under, uh, between their relationship that moving forward, you know, is there? Yeah, uh, I have a lot of thoughts about that. Um, the first thing, getting back to Jordy for a second. So, yeah, there's like we said with the Naked Time, the TOS episode, that series was, of course, establishing the universe and the norms. And one of the things that was implied by that episode was that the normal state of being for these people in this Roddenberry and future was to get along. And then we see when they're drunk, they reach to their cultural corners. That was one thing we're saying, okay, the norm is we get along. And here, the implication with Jordy is the norm for a person who is blind, who is what we currently call disabled, um, not to have that sadness. The implication is that he, it's weird for him. He's obviously under the influence of something that he's acting this way. Um, because we see the the other episodes later on in the series that deal with his blindness as like a plot point. There's like, um, the enemy from season three where he's crawling around with that Romulan and they have to be, his visor stops working and they have to get along to go along. It's a good episode. Without it, you're blind. I was born that way. And your parents let you live. What kind of question is that? Of course they let me live. No wonder your race is weak. You waste time and resources on defective children. Um, uh, the episode we referenced before uh, with Riva and the, the, the deaf-mute um, uh, ambassador person. And you don't resent it? The visor or being blind? Either. No. It's a blessing to understand that we are special, each in his own way. Yes. Yes, that's the way I feel exactly. I don't refer to it as a disability, really. Um... And then something like uh, Inheritance from season seven, where his blindness and his visor hookup provides him the means to deal with this other psychological issue. But never again, I guess it's until um, Star Trek Insurrection, Star Trek Nine, there is that scene where his eyes regrow. It may not last. And if it doesn't, I just, I just want it before we go. You know, I've never seen a sunrise. At least, not the way you see them. But this idea that he really yearns to be like everybody else is not really brought up ever again. Yeah, you know, it's almost like when they wrote this episode, they didn't really think it through about, like, the long-term, like, you know, character arc. (laughs) It says a lot that when Jordy says, I wish I could see, like other people that the response he's given is but you already see better than i can i see more but more isn't better rather than being disabled you actually have this extra capacity you know you actually are you this gives you the ability to be better than everybody else which is an interesting take I don't love the fact that they essentially tell Jordy, you shouldn't feel that way. 
but I can imagine like, oh, if I was colorblind and I, I wish I could see the world the way other people could see it. You know, if I was deaf and could hear a little bit because of hearing aids, I would still want to know what the experience was like of, of what do other people hear? What is that like? Like just, mm-hmm. I think there's always like this kind of curiosity about like, what is this thing that I can't have? What is it like, you know? And, and I think there's a yearning for what we can't know and what we don't know. I think the stuff with Jordy is, it certainly raises some interesting questions and good food for thought, but I am less impressed by, okay, so we talked about how in, again, in, in, in the naked time, um, substances, especially alcohol, but other substances affect different people differently. And that's fine. We're all different. But for whatever weird reason, all of the women uh, in the main cast seem to be affected by this alcohol water thing uh, by becoming incredibly horny. Right now, I find you extremely, extremely. Of course, we haven't time for that sort of thing. What sort of thing? Oh, God, would I love to show you. You want to play me hard? Phrasing. No, I don't. Well, then you better nut up. Phrasing. Because I've swallowed just about as much as I can take from you. Hey, phrasing. <laughs> as, as a non-woman, uh, that struck me as not ideal <laughs> uh, as a depiction, but I would, I would love your take on that. I, I don't want to extend the same kind of generosity that we gave toward Jordy and, mm. like, the... You know, the establishing like the 24th century norms about dis- about disability and blindness and how it's so different than how we how we think about that now. I think that that creative choice, because that was a choice that someone thought was a good idea, um, uh, is more a reflection about the time in which the show was made. Feminism and the socialization of women, especially around sexuality, is such a big topic that's, like, impossible to get into right now, let alone in one episode. Like, if we did want to do that, it might be, like, a little mini-series, like we did on gender, just throwing it out there for future thought. Women have all these contradictory expectations put on them all the time. There's this idea of, like, you should be this pure, you know, virginal Madonna who is spotless and, you know, if you have sex before you're married, you're, you know, you're this terrible person, you know, it, one extreme. And on the other extreme, you're supposed to be, like, incredibly sexually versed and good and, like, please your husband and know all these things without ever having to figure it out, you know? Mm-hmm. And you're supposed to be both of those things at the same time, and no matter which one you are, you're wrong. Yeah. So... With that context, I watch this episode and I and I see, oh, there's this idea that women aren't sexual. You know, that somehow women want sex less than men. Not true. And so somehow by like, you know, reducing their inhibitions, they do reveal that they're actually like these really sexual beings. And that somehow is this like whoa, you didn't know, you know, kind of vibe to it that I'm just like, it's not great. I don't Well, it. it's it's male gazy in that as much as it tries to be even handed in its way, I mean, you know, we see that Picard and uh, Beverly are both trying to keep their hands off each other. 
you know, the, the, he is one of the people who's made horny, it seems, in some ways, by, by yeah. this thing. Um, you know, Will isn't in, really into it. And Data is into it with Tasha for different reasons, which we're going to come back to in a second. But it's just like, you know, the, the, the fucking teenage boy isn't <laughs> made that that feels pretty unlikely in comparison to the fact that suddenly, you know, we're supposed to see all this insatiable horniness from our, from our women characters. It's not great, but I think you're absolutely right. It's more, it says more about the writers and the producers of the time um, yeah. than it does about what Star Trek is trying to say about femininity. Um, speaking of which, the probably the most standout um, uh, consequence from this episode, both in terms of what's remembered in the fandom and what influences later... Uh, episodes of the series is the relationship or the hookup, whatever you want to call it, between uh, Tasha and Data. Um, and we talked in our first episode, I believe, first or second episode about artificial intelligence, how that's yeah. brought up in A Measure of a Man. Um, and when Data meets Tasha's sister, uh, it, it gets brought up again. He, and it gets brought up um, when he meets Sila, uh, Tasha's half Romulan daughter. I rather enjoy writing. I don't get to do it very often in this job. Perhaps you would be happier in another job. So for Data, at least, this thing, which in the episode is treated as kind of a joke and let's never talk about it again, it ends up coming back uh, as something meaningful to him. I think it's really sweet that Data, like, great gained such an attachment to her. Um, on the other hand, if I hooked up with a guy once and he became obsessed with me, I would feel a little creeped out. So it's kind, of, it's kind of hard to tell. Like, how, like, how yeah. should I feel about this? There's like a couple different angles. Under the circumstances, I don't think Tasha would mind. She was special to me, sir. We were intimate. Well, and unfortunately, because Tasha dies, we don't get her side of things. You know, we just have sort of Data's this take on things, and and all we see from this episode. Again, we have to infer a lot about who she is, uh, the implication is that she, again, as going in with the trope, she's not, doesn't allow herself to be very sexual. She doesn't allow herself to be very feminine. I want to change my image. What do you think about this? Or, or this one? It's not for you. And apparently the first thing she does when she gets drunk is want to fuck a robot, which, no judgment. That's <laughs> totally fine. Um... I mean, I hate to break it to you, Elliot, but I think a lot of women have sex with robots. <laughs> it's, it's not just Tasha. Of course. <laughs> See, very progressive Star Trek show. No, it's great. No, we 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 stand we stand sex toys of all of all of all types on this podcast. Yeah, you're right. There's a, there's a lot that we kind of have to fill in ourselves that like isn't necessarily canon, and you know, again, I think that was partly the writers not thinking ahead like it's the same issue with Jordy and like how he feels about his visor that's almost never brought up again there's also the fact that like no one knew that that actress was going to leave the show and they were going to have to kill off the character at this point so like who knows where that relationship or storyline might have gone if I am going to be generous to toward Data and not thinking he's a creep (laughs) um I, I can understand why he would get such a strong attachment to, to Tasha. As humans, I think sex is one of 
or can be one of the most profound experiences that we can have. And, you know, we talked about this in our Riza episode a little bit. Um, but for me, the best sex that I've ever had is very much like a different state of consciousness. Like mm-hmm. it's not the same version of myself that I walk through the rest of my life with. Um, it's something that it, it's almost like this special room that I get to go to, a special like sacred refuge that I go to. And the way I experience myself and the world is very different and very specific to that setting. And it's, it's wonderful. You know, it's something that I wish everybody can get to experience. And it's also one of the most unique experiences that I think we as humans can have. Um, and because like there's nothing like what do you compare sex to like there's nothing really comparable it's it's his very own unique powerful kind of experience Mm -hmm. and for data to have so few experiences like that Mm. i would i can understand how that would really stand out to him as something like uh, that was so different from everything else that I've ever experienced, that it's going to stand out and it's going to be really special. And and the people that you share that with, like you have a, you have a certain bond with them. Like they know you and you know them in a way that you don't know everybody else, you know? And, and so I like to think of data as having had an experience that he can't quantify and that being such a beautiful mystery to him and in that way, he's so thankful and loving toward Tasha for having shared that experience with him. Yeah. Uh, as you say that, it, it's very possible this is the very first time, potentially the only time Data ever had sex before he died. Um, it's it's very possible, So which, which then, of course, tracks with what you're saying in terms of how it became so meaningful to him, even if we don't know how Tasha felt about it. Um, but what I really like about that as far as how it fits our theme is the idea that whether it is about sex or not, you can have experiences that are facilitated by recreational drug use, alcohol, for example, which, Mm. you know, we want to be careful. (laughs) We're not advising people to get drunk or high and then have sex, but there are times in which being under the influence can afford you experiences that you wouldn't otherwise have, which because they're so emotionally heightened by the drug partially in the moment, our memory of them is very powerful. And therefore it has a profound influence on our lives moving forward. And I like that as a a commentary on the potentially positive side of, of drug use in that way. Today, with a third season DS9 episode, Fascination. Avery Brooks directed, I received in Barakora with James Crocker, and it aired in 1994. It's the annual Bajoran Gratitude Festival. Our heroes are trying to put their troubles behind them as the spirit of the festival demands. Jake has broken up with his latest girlfriend. Miles is anxious about the brief return of his wife and daughter to the station. Odo is awkwardly trying to put the moves on Kira, but she's protracting her involvement with would-be Kai Burial. If I'm going to live here with you humanoids, I 
may as well immerse myself in your rituals. Well, then we'll see each other later. I'd like that. For you, I will make the time, Odo. Just look for me. I'll be with Varile. There's a general sense of melancholy in the air. And who should arrive to disrupt the proceedings but the fountain of feeling herself, Loxana Troy? She's here to visit Odo in the wake of the recent revelation about the Founders and his connection to the Dominion. Their history was one of the bright spots from her previous appearance on DS9 in the episode The Forsaken. I've never cared to be ordinary. So you see, Odo, even we non-shapeshifters have to change who we are once in a while. I cannot hold my shape any longer. Let go. I'll take care of you. We see that she's having these headaches of late, which portend something decidedly ungrateful for the evening's festivities. Indeed, the other characters start having brief headaches themselves as the festival begins and start acting out of character. I feel like we've seen this pattern before. At least this time, the horniness is gender indiscriminate. The issue is that folks start pursuing people for whom they have previously shown no attraction. Jake is after Kira, Kira is after Bashir, this one's mutual, Barile is after Jedzia, Jedzia is after Sisko, Quark is after Keiko, and lest we forget, Laksana is very much after Odo. The O'Brien's relationship seems like it's on the skids, given their prolonged absence and career life balance issues. There's one thing I want you to know, Keiko. I, I love you. I want you to know I've left a letter of resignation on Commander Sisko's desk. I'm ready to move down to Bajor with you tomorrow if you'll have me. I'll do whatever it takes. I just don't want to lose you. Honey? Did you hear what I said? Yes. And? And I need time to think. Their conflict, uniquely amongst the antics on board, isn't being fueled by the Luaxana-induced goofiness of the week. Yes, indeed, her headaches turn out to be the cause of the odd behavior. It's like Sarek, but stupid. The plot culminates in Sisko's quarters, where a Midsummer Night's Dream, but again stupid, plays itself out. More like a how-to sexual harassment seminar with past hors d'oeuvres. After a few more undignified minutes, they piece together the source of these shenanigans, treat the wayward betazoid, and try not to think too hard about the day's events. And there would have had to have been some pre-existing latent attraction. You were saying, Dex? Only on a subconscious level. Best not think about it too much, if you ask me. So... Uh, again, we have an episode where the idea is people are acting out of character, but what is a little different this time, what's, what's out of character for them is not supposed to really say anything about who they are, maybe. Bashir kind of says at the end, there had to be a latent subconscious aspect to this, but I hate what that has to say about any of the characters, so let's just headcan and ignore that and say <laughs> this is people acting totally out of character. Um which is a real thing um, under the influence. Um, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. That's actually a pretty big question, Elliot, whether or not people act like themselves under the influence or not, or whether or not they don't, they act unlike themselves, which I, I want to save for a little later in this podcast. But heard, let's get back to it. Um, but I do think that people can act out of character in ways that they actually wouldn't, 
act in any other circumstance. You know, like they would they would never do some of the things they would do if they weren't intoxicated. You know, sometimes people want that. They actually want to be somebody else for a little while or act differently or just like take on these different characteristics. Um, and what I find really interesting about this episode is the way that everyone is enacting what Luxana would want to do, not what they would want to do. And mm. I, I find that kind of like, like you said, like she is, she is sending out these telepathic signals and it's almost like the strings on marionettes and puppets. And she's like, this mm. is how I want to move. Other people get hit by that telepathic information and they move in that way in whatever setting they find themselves. Yeah. Well, that's why I, unkindly compared it to Sarek, which we looked at uh, recently, uh, in that it is, it's not, it's not really people acting their own, you know, remember from Sarek, like Wesley and Jordy yelling at each other, Picard and Riker yelling at each other. Yeah. I know that. Then tell him that there is no way. Don't you tell me what to do. Captain, commander. We're not supposed to infer that they have these subliminal, deep-seated issues with each other. It's just Sarek throwing this stuff around the ship. And similarly, it's Luxana throwing this sexual harassment <laughs> <laughs> lawsuit issue around. Um, and it's not... What it makes me think of, in addition to what you say, it's not really with the way the characters are behaving, but one of the functions or one of the, the go-to sort of places with drugs and alcohol that people, I think, sometimes go to is purposefully... Uh, ingesting substances like this in order to act out of character. Mm. Like there might be something, uh, their conscience or their shyness or whatever uh, inhibits them in a way that they don't want to be inhibited and they can't get past that inhibition without the use of these drugs. So people, for example, let's say that there is this subliminal need for or desire on, I don't know, Jadzia's part. This one seems a little plausible, given what we see um, in one of the Mirror Universe episodes of DS9, that there is this attraction that maybe even Curzon had something very, very deep in his recesses. Phrasing, boom! <clears throat> Inappropriate. When he knew Cisco when they were younger, um, that's now in Jedzia, now she's a woman and they're straight, so I guess they can act on it in this very, very far away place that they would never do, but given the substance metaphor here, it gives her permission to do that. And I think, I think that's real. I think people sometimes they, they drink or they, they smoke pot or whatever, whatever drug specifically to create the space to explore this thing that they want to try. That reminds me though, about what we were talking about in our last episode about drugs, about how addiction can be viewed as an attachment disorder and the idea of that is that people will take a substance in order to compensate for something that they lack internally, be that a self-soothing mechanism or um, a skill, or it, it's just something that they feel like they lack themselves and they can only get it through this substance, you know, and in a, in the immediate short term, that actually may be true, but long term, the recovery goal is to learn how to build the internal skills so that 
whatever it is you're trying to accomplish with the substance, you don't need the substance. Like you can actually just do it yourself or that you develop the interpersonal skills in order to get that need met through other people versus a substance. So, so I hear you in that that is something that happens, but at least from like a, a therapy standpoint, that's like a, I hear that as a crutch or a, a stopgap, something, something that you're using to make up for a lack of an intrapsychic skill, you know, that you didn't get for a myriad of reasons. And then how do you go back and de- help yourself develop that so that you don't need the substance to do it? Oh, totally. Um, again, I, 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 I don't mean for it to be like a Trekno babble, psycho babble recommends <laughs> <laughs> segment, just a, um, an observation. Yeah, and yeah. Th- what you say sounds, sounds right. Um, in that it, I, I would assume if I were to bring, um, a substance abuse or use, uh, issue of, of that kind to, 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 to my therapist, they probably wouldn't be like, yes, continue to <laughs> continue to, to explore things that way. Yeah. Um, which, which brings me to, uh, Miles and Keiko in this episode. So they are not under the influence um, of Loxana's telepathy for whatever reason. However, they are also dealing with somewhat out of character um, behaviors. But the, the, the thing is, their issues are real, right? They actually are dealing with this long distance issue and their careers running into conflict with each other and trying to maintain a sex life with the daughter and not having a lot of time together. Yeah. All very relatable things. I don't like this any more than you do. Well, you just said you were having a great time. Oh, I'm sorry. I suppose you'd be happier if I were miserable. I didn't say that. <sighs> Sabar was right. I never should have mentioned it. Who's Sabar? He warned me not to talk to you about this until after the Gratitude Festival. I thought you were down there working. We are working. Yeah, with time out for intimate little chats about our relationship. You're behaving like a child. What do you want me to say? I gotta stay here with me. Miles, right now, I don't even want to sit at the same table with you. At the end of the episode, they reconcile, basically, by this vicarious view of like, oh God, everyone around me is acting like an idiot and a horny idiot. And I, I guess the implication is they, that they see then in themselves how their behaviors weren't as rational or well thought out or um, healthy as they could be and found some empathy for each other, which in an episode that I genuinely did not like (laughs) was that was a bright spot for me. Yeah, I, I, that was a bright spot for me too. Like just seeing, yeah, seeing the conflict and the resolution that they go through was, was heartwarming because like, yeah, it's really relatable what they're going through. It kind of gets turned up to 11 with Luxana's influence, especially in the in the intensity of how they're fighting and how Miles gets drunk and how Keiko shows up in that very sexy dress. You know, like, so some of those things I think are influenced by Luxana, but, but the heart of what they're dealing with, I think, is the one thing that is actually real between versus everyone else has these it's coming out of nowhere almost this is not a common practice nor is it legal in most states um but there there is there are studies being shown on psychedelics in the context of couples therapy 
And um, it's really interesting. Like people, people under supervision, like, and again, this is not, we are recommending this. It's just, this exists in the world. Go look it up if you're more interested in it. People under the, under the supervision of a therapist will take MDMA and do a couples counseling session. Um, And the way people feel on MDMA or ecstasy is just like, I love everybody. You know, everything's great. (laughs) Like you just, you just feel so full of love. Um, And that's a really nice place to be when you're dealing with interpersonal conflict. Cause you don't get angry. You don't get as angry. You don't get as defensive. Like you're able to talk through really, really difficult things without getting too emotionally volatile. And you can really see mm. the person and just be like, yeah, no, I get it. I love you, man. You know? Um, <laughs> and uh, there's a great Netflix series that talks about this a little bit um, with Michael Pollan um, called how to change your mind. And I'm pretty sure that's where I saw the footage of the couples therapy with MDMA. So if you're interested in more, go check that out. Well, for those who didn't cancel their Netflix subscri- subscriptions after they took Star Trek off of it, um, that would be a good thing to check out. Um, they're not sponsoring this video, by the way. So again, we're not recommending anything. Um, no, that's that, that's a good, that's fascinating. I had actually no idea that, that was an option. Um, I might have to ask somebody about that. Um, but I like... I, I like the idea that there's some nuance between, you know, we talked last week again about the fact that the hard delineations we make between medicine or recreational drug or like abuse and use, guided use, all of those things. It's a gray area. There, there There's a fluidity sometimes to how those things are applied. And it's, it's a case-by-case judgment that one has to make on yeah. how that's happening. But the idea that there is a medicinal application without it literally being a prescription um, is fascinating to me as, as, a, as a therapeutic methodology with, with, with drugs. Yeah, well, it's like, again, the drug itself is neutral. People make meaning about it. They say this is good or this is bad. Like the, the, the plant or the substance or the chemical in and of itself just exists. You know, it's very amoral. We're the people that make morality out of it. Um, and, and yeah, like substances, they can be recreational. They can be medicinal. They can potentially be therapeutic. It really depends on the intention of the person ingesting it and the context in which they find themselves. You know, like, again, like taking mushrooms isn't inherently therapeutic, it could be recreational. It could be therapeutic. It really depends on how and why um, you're, you're doing it. Like um, there's this idea of set and setting in, especially in psychedelics um, where what is your mindset going into this experience and where are you, you know, like, are you at a rave? Are you in a really calm space that has been set up for you and your safety and someone's watching you? Are you in a subway station? Like all those factors will play a huge difference on how how you experience that substance um, consciously. Fascinating. Um, we would be remiss not to touch on since we, we we talked a little bit about the view of the writers' room when it came to writing the female characters in TNG um, to talk about this. It's a little less overt and hard. <laughs> Um, in the DS9 episode here, but we do have this kind of like, oh, 
old lady is horny and screws everybody's screws everybody up. The sexuality of old people in general and old women in particular is seen as this. Oh, we gotta we gotta fix you. Stop doing that. Thank you for pointing that out. That's that is true and problematic. Again, like that's very ageist. This idea that old people are not as human as the rest of us. In the or yeah. you know, I'm using human very liberally in this situation. <laughs> But yeah, mm-hmm. somehow that like, oh, you don't have the same needs as everybody else when you get old. Like, that's not true. Yeah. Xanthi fever is a virus which affects the empathic abilities of um, mature betazoids. It causes them to project their emotions onto others. Then Mrs. Choi's amorous feelings for someone on the station were being passed along to the people around her. Culturally, that's the message that we're told, that some people believe, that some people impose on others, but it's not true. Yeah. So someday we'll do a, a little character study on Loxana for sure, because she's an interesting and divisive character in the franchise, and I really don't like the way her sexuality is pathologized yeah. um, a lot of times, and this is one big example of that. Yeah. So, uh, without divulging too much personal information, um, it's, it's, it can be a little tricky sometimes dealing with a podcast all about um, psychology, yeah. not, to, not to get a little uh, parasocial with, with the audience. But uh, let's just say that I have recently um, started exploring my own behaviors uh, under the substance in, in my therapy sessions. I'll, I'll leave it there. Um, but I think it would be interesting to do a, a little sort of mock session with you Elizabeth now that you're practicing um, and we'll, we'll keep it general but I I, 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 I want to make a point so would you please okay. indulge me <laughs> uh, sure yeah and um, self-disclosure is a big topic in you know when you're studying to become a therapist and so I, I get it so doctor counselor um, the what I have come to discover is that there are behaviors that I'm exhibiting when I'm under the influence that I are unusual for me, um, and I don't know what to make of them. I don't know whether these the, the substance is revealing something about myself that I need to work on or just be aware of, or whether the use of the substance is creating these behaviors in me that I, uh, that are aberrant, that are not really a part of my true self. And therefore the solution would be to simply back off of the substance so that they don't emerge. And I, I guess I don't know where to, where to go from there. What's unusual about it? It's not something I would ever do and have no uh, history of ever doing, um, when sober at least. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about the behavior? Uh, ashamed, I think. Uh, concerned, again, especially if it is revealing something about me. <laughs> Where does the shame come from? What does it want to tell you? Oh, it wants to tell me that I have uh, some darkness in me that I have never dealt with and am intimidated by the prospect of, of confronting. Yeah, I actually don't want to be this thing. That terrifies me. 
exactly. The, the idea that this is somehow part of me is very concerning. Why? Well, because one, the fact that I've gone as many years as I have as a human being uh, without noticing it is disturbing that I could be so um, oblivious. And secondly, the I. this behavior is something I don't ever want to exhibit no matter what state I'm in. And if I, whatever work I need to do to not behave that way, I want to do, but I am worried that that's just a lot of work that it's a lot of energy that's going to go into making that change. Mm -hmm. When you were under the influence, if you can recall like getting back into that, that mindset in that time, what was going through your mind either right before you engaged in that behavior or while you were doing it? Um, well, and to be perfectly honest, I don't remember. You and I are very good friends, so I can't be your therapist. Like, just, like, that won't work. <laughs> and I'm not expecting you to, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to give an example, yeah. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Elliot. I know it's hard. It's hard to talk about such personal things in such general terms. You know, it is both difficult and super vulnerable at the same time, so thank you. Well, there, there, there were two things that really struck me just in that conversation. One, and, and, both, and both bring up general points. The first is this idea of like, I'm a terrible person. I have this darkness inside of me. And if I can acknowledge that that is there, that would threaten everything I thought I was and everything I think I am. And like, I, I just can't accept that part of myself if I really am like that. I think a lot of people look at parts of themselves and, and, and see that darkness and go, oh, fuck no. You know, like, I can't, I can't be that. We are good people and bad people. We are honest and we are liars. We are moral and immoral. We are good and evil. Like, we have all of that within us. Every single person has the full range of human potential within us. And so all of us have darkness. All of us have things of which we are ashamed. All of us have parts of ourselves which we find abhorrent. How can you be okay that that thing exists? But also knowing that it exists doesn't mean that it has ultimate control over you. And that segues into my second point, which is about what is our true self? You know, like we've kind of been like, you know, circling that idea throughout this podcast about Mm -hmm. when you're inebriated, does that reveal, does that reveal your true self that is hidden, you know, through socialization, culture, however, you know, however it is you want to label that. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a a cliche, (laughs) this idea that uh, wine loosens the tongue, right? This idea that we are inebriated selves are are simply the selves that we are without the um, architecture around us to keep things contained which we've been conditioned not to say or do yeah um that's certainly an undergirding philosophy in the episodes we watched yeah and i don't i actually don't necessarily agree with that to take a Freudian idea, which I admittedly don't love, but like it's actually a pretty good example. Nine, nine, nine. Do not be so little. You have the id, the ego, and the superego. 
the id is kind of like our animalistic nature, our animalistic instincts. Our superego is is our is our socialization, is our culturalization. It's who we think we should be. These are the rules. This is how you should be. This is how you should not be. And the ego exists in the middle to kind of navigate between the two of them. Like what impulses from the id do I do I follow? What impulses from the super ego do I follow? And the ego is kind of the intermediary that's trying to balance those two opposite poles. That's the Freudian idea. That structure makes a lot of sense to me, you know. Um, but u- ultimately, what the ego is is a vehicle of choice. U- ultimately, it comes down to: Do you react to something or do you respond? Reaction is automatic. It is the id. It is the animalistic instinct. It's autopilot. It's what happens, and you have no control over it. It's stronger than you. It's bigger than you. It washes over you, and you are just, like, taken along for the ride. I'm in control of my emotions. The others believe that. I don't. I love you. I don't know why, but I love you. I do love you. A response is you very deliberately choosing what to do next, what to say, how to respond. I think that our true selves are the people that make the choice. I don't think that Mm. automatic first impulse, I don't think that's our true self. That, That is our id. That is our animalistic instinct. That's what happens if we, if there's nothing in the way essentially, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think that's kind of what comes to the surface when we're inebriated, um, when we have intoxication, when our inhibitions are taken down. I think that actually is what comes up more. And like our ego, our vehicle of choice takes a slight back seat. And that's where the change comes. I can feel really angry and I could be taken over by that feeling and yell and scream and say things I don't mean. That's a part of me. But if I can feel that and have the vehicle of choice to be like, I feel this, but I'm going to respond to you in a very specific way right now that I am choosing and I'm going to walk away and just calm the fuck down. You know, that I think is actually me because I'm choosing that versus just being along for the ride. If I may, first of all, that's really eloquently put. Um, I'm reminded of a metaphorical device you mentioned in our episode about fear, episode eight, where we talked about uh, driving the bus and how with respect to fear, um, having it in your, in your bus as a passenger, one of, one of many passengers is perfectly healthy and good and desirable. Having it in the driver's seat, probably not. And to apply that metaphor here to substance use and behaviors that result from it, what I what I feel like you're saying is like uh, having the substance shuffles the the, the seating yeah, <laughs> in yeah. a way that is unusual. It's still the same bus, but people are in the wrong spot. So we're making different course corrections and, and just things are happening. The result is different than it would be when people are in their right places, but it's still us. And yet it isn't because that configuration of people, little people in our in our psyche, uh, is oriented the way it normally is for a reason. And 
like most answers that we try to come to on this pod, it's always a yes and. Yes, and. The, the behaviors we exhibit when we drunk are a revelation of a part of ourselves, but that self is no more authentic or real than, than the self that we are when we're not under the influence. It's just a different piece of the psyche that's getting the focus and the attention and given the driver's seat for the moment. The fancy word for it is the polytheistic psyche, but right. I love that. Um, but, but it's this idea like we are many selves, we are many things and we're not just one fully integrated thing. Like there's, there's a whole world of versions of ourselves inside of us and like just which, which, facet of us is facing forward in a given situation and especially the parts of ourselves that we don't want to accept like that's the most challenging part like I I had an experience this past summer where I had a flash of of wanting to do something that a millisecond later like my super ego came in and was like that is disgusting like the fact that you even wanted that for a second, like, you know, there's judgment. There's all the reasons that you shouldn't do that. And I could have gone down that road of like, yeah, I can't believe I had that thought or that desire or that like want to move in that direction for a second. You know, um, like the fact that that exists was could have been a problem. I, I think that's where a lot of people land and where a lot of people stay. The fact that it exists is a problem. But what I'm coming to learn is that, like, it exists. Like, whether or not I want it to, it exists. Not now, Doctor. But I get to choose whether or not that drives the bus. I get to choose whether or not to listen to it. I get to choose how that shows up in my life. And and that that vehicle of choice, that's what makes us us. I think that is our true selves versus, you know... The animalistic autopilot. Most other animals don't have that. They don't have egos. Like, you know, they, they have personalities, but a cat feels something and it acts. You know, humans, a lot of humans feel something and they act, but they don't have to. A lot of humans do the work to feel something, pause, and have the strength to say, I feel this way and I'm going to choose this. say it this time um thank you as always for your your brilliant insights and for just like talking about like such a great franchise with me and like i love the i love the way that we dissect it and i love getting your perspectives and i love the questions you ask and um yeah i really enjoyed recording this with you and it, it was really it felt really satisfying to also just become a little bit more aware of my own thoughts around this idea especially like what is what are our true selves and, and you know intoxication as a record you know as not necessarily bad i'm really grateful for your expertise and your continued curiosity about these things it's it's such a pleasure to talk about the original idea i think with doing these two episodes was to do one drugs are bad one drugs are good um and i i think it's clear that neither of those binary um, options is really true on its own. It's always 
yes and and yes with yes because yes in the context of and what i do hope people take out of this is less apprehension regardless of where you know whether you're dealing with um someone who might be facing a, a real addiction or introducing or moderating drug use in your own life or in the life of someone you you, you love there are always questions to be asked and always it's always okay to reassess how you feel about something yeah. you don't have to be settled on your answers to those questions at any point yeah. as the scrolls burn may our troubles turn to ashes with them and now for the next 26 hours i expect you all to enjoy yourselves i know i will what i do want to say to anyone who is considering um adding or changing uh their their drug use is please be safe uh no heavy machinery no driving um no uh ideally <laughs> you're not in a position where you're going to have um, major consequences uh, to, to, to your life moving forward as a result of choices that uh, you might make in those in those times. But that said, value those experiences because they can be really wonderful and um, and mean something in your life moving forward. We uh, talked a little bit about Jordy uh, this episode, Elizabeth, which has been fun, and we love Jordy. However, next week we're going to take him apart a bit because uh, I hate to break it to you, but Jordy be can be kind of a creep. I know he can be such a creep, and I love Levar Burton, and that makes it so I hard. I know, I know, but it's we we have to talk about it, so it's going to be Jordy and his um and his and his creepiness, and I think. TNG fans know exactly what we're talking about, so uh, stay tuned for that. Uh, thank you again for your insights. Thank you to our listeners and patrons and supporters. Please um, don't forget to subscribe, comment, like, share, all those uh, great internet things. We really appreciate uh, all of that. Uh, and anyway, Elizabeth, I will see you next week. See you next week. So, hey, it's a happy ending. <sighs> yeah. Yeah, it's just a big old goddamn fairy tale. Fairy tale? Uh, phrasing? <laughs>